All right, hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Social Brain. Uh, today we're talking about rewiring your brain with neuroplasticity. I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone. I run the channel, The I almost said The Social Brain, but no, I run The <laughs> Sense of Mind. And uh, this is my co-host, Taylor Guthrie. And I'm going to hand it off to him while I tell my dogs to stop barking for just a second. Sorry. <laughs> so as Andrew said, we're going to be talking about neuroplasticity today, which is a fascinating topic. We've touched on little pieces of it in a lot of our past episodes. Uh, but today we're really going to kind of uh, give a, a bird's eye view of what neuroplasticity is, how to, to really engage it in your life. And I wanted to start with, uh, there's this really beautiful metaphor that I've heard before about, um, about neuroplasticity and about really how hard it is to change. And that's something I really want to highlight in this episode is that change is possible, but it's hard, right? And so think about neuroplasticity as a building process, like you're building a path through the woods. Right now, take any of your bad habits. It can be sleeping in, drinking too much coffee, doing cocaine. Right. Every time you engage in one of these bad habits, one of these behaviors, you're putting in work on that path. You're cutting the weeds back, you're stamping down the ground and making it even until eventually, after you've done these bad habits so many times, you've gone through and you've actually paved that path. And now when you walk it, it's effortless, right? You don't have to think about where you're stepping. You don't have to think about where you're going. You just walk that path and it's easy, right? But one day you wake up and you decide that you want to change. You don't like where this path is leading you anymore, but you now have to step off of this really nice paved path that you just made and you have to make a new path. And the new one's going to be a lot harder to build than the old one, right? It's, it's uphill. It's through a bunch of undergrowth in the forest, right? But you got your New Year's resolution, you go out that first day, you're ready for change, you got your machete, you're chopping stuff down, right? You're so excited about it. Uh, but you realize that you have to wake up every morning at five o'clock in the morning to go to the gym, to meditate, to start eating healthy, right? It takes effort. It takes determination. You have to continually put work in on building that new path of climbing that hill, cutting things back. And all the while, while you're doing that, that old path that you made, that really nice paved one, is still there, right? It might be dusty. It might be a little overgrown, but that's fine. You can dust it off. You can cut it back. And you're right back to walking to nowhere, right? Because it's easy. And so that's something that we really want to highlight in this episode is that change is possible. It's, it's absolutely possible. That's what our brains were designed to do. But it's hard. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of determination. And you have to realize that, I mean, this is what, when you think about addiction, the reason why there's always the potential for relapse is because those old ways of doing things, those old habits, those old paths that you've already created are always still there. And they might get weaker over time, but as soon as you go back to them, they're right back to where they were. And it's really easy to hop right back on that train. And so I, I really like that metaphor because it really kind of encapsulates the fact that like, we are building our path through the world. We're building these, these neural pathways in our brain. We're changing our brain. Uh, and we have the ability to pick whatever path we want. Some of them are hard. Some of them are easy. But it takes a lot of effort to really do that. And uh, if you signed on to this episode for a, a quick pill or an easy fix for how to change and how to do things meaningful in your life, I'm sorry you came to the wrong place. Uh, because we're telling you how to change, but we're also telling you that you have to put in the work. Yeah, and it's that's it's such a great metaphor because it's it's not only I mean in some way it's kind of literal. It's 
you're actually changing these pathways in your brain. You are, you're literally changing the, the functioning of your brain, the dynamics of, of how your brain activity plays out. And, um, and neuroplasticity is, is always happening. And like, it's, you're always, your brain is always changing. We're going to talk about some of the, the mechanisms of actually how that occurs in the brain and, and what it really means. And then what you can do with it, but then also what some of the limitations are and some of the hurdles, like Taylor was mentioning that it's going to take effort. It's going to take focus. It's going to take consistency. And, uh, none of that comes easily. So, uh, even the, the title we have is, is how neuroplasticity can transform your life. And it, the, the operative word there is can, can yeah. transform your life. If, you know, you put in that effort and that, that hard work and that time. Um, but yeah, it's a great, great thing to start out with. And we got a, we got a comment from Tracy. Change wasn't hard for me. All it took was a few mind blowing meditations. That's something we're going to touch, touch on too, uh, because there are ways to break into these, these plastic mechanisms that do kind of open up the ability to, to do this change in kind of an easier way. But it probably wasn't easy for you to be able to get into those meditations in the first place, to have a meditation routine, to start meditating. And for a lot of people, that's really difficult. Turning off all of this internal chatter to be able to even focus on those things in the first place uh, is, is not an easy thing to get to when you're so used to just kind of drowning out and kind of constantly lost in thought and things like that. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I guess change can come quickly, and uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but but there's always there's always some significant uh, neurophysiology going on under the surface. Um, so before we get to the actual mechanisms, I guess we should just kind of give an overview of, of what it is, like what's the significance of neuroplasticity. And we've just been talking about it. Any kind of transformative or just significant change you make in your life is going to involve this process of changing the pathways in your brain. And um, that's true for everything from learning new skills to memories of events to, you know, anything that that changes you or um, changes your knowledge or your view of life. Um, this is all actually change that's happening ultimately at a cellular level in your brain. And it's also, as, as Taylor was talking about, the negative side of it. There's we develop bad habits or, you know, we talked about in a previous episode on automatizing um, your motor movements that we, we, a lot of us automatize poor posture. So I'm kind of trying to sit <laughs> up while I say this, but, uh, but all of that has to do with real changes that are happening to the connections among neurons in your brain. And, and the bottom line that again, like we're just really emphasizing this, but your brain is is really adaptable. It's adaptive. It's a, a adaptive complex system, and it continually changes with your experience. And you can at least partially direct those changes and work toward kind of a better version of you. Um, so, should we? Do you want to get into the mechanisms, Taylor? Well, I was just uh, I was going to kind of piggyback on that a little bit uh, and just kind of put things into context. Think about some other animals in the world, right? Think about like a giraffe that just got born with these just like super wobbly legs, right? Or, or like a horse that just, they're up and, and walking within hours, right? Running around, having fun. Dolphins are born swimming, right? Uh, 
something that I, I want everybody to really think about is the fact that humans have this really unique characteristic in the animal world in that we're born completely helpless. But that's for a reason. It's because like we devised a new mechanism to learn, uh, to to teach, to, to be able to adapt to our environment. And so our brain can rewire itself to the circumstances around us. And that's what really makes us a, a powerful species on this planet is our ability to be as flexible as we are. Um, and so that really is what's underlying a lot of this is that there's, there's a reason why adolescence isn't until we're in our teens, right? For some animals, like they go through adolescence in the first like six months of life. Right. And then everything is is pretty specialized. It's pretty hardwired. That's what happens to us in adolescence. Uh, and we'll kind of talk about that as we get into some of the mechanisms, because some of these plasticity windows, they close as we specialize, as we become really good at things. Right. Um, but I guess, yeah, we can kind of jump into some of those mechanisms. Uh, yeah. Because what, what just one more point about that, yeah. uh, that, you know, it is such a great point that we have to kind of wire ourselves or our brains have to wire themselves to the environments that we yeah. find ourselves growing up in and living in. And, um, you know, just like one way of thinking about this is that the prefrontal cortex, uh, which is something we've, we've talked about a lot in previous episodes, um, this brain region that's so involved in really top-down control of behavior and emotion and uh, cognitive control, executive functioning, planning, organizing, even the sense of self, uh, these are really center on the prefrontal cortex. And this brain region is really hyperplastic, especially throughout our, our youth and into maybe our, our 20s, our earlier mid, maybe late 20s. But um, it's not fully developed and it's it's still wiring itself to the environment. And one idea about why that is, is that as humans, we're such a cultural species and we have to be able to kind of wire ourselves to the, the cultural norms and mores of, of the society and the you know families that we live in. Um, so just just kind of a, another a uh, big picture idea to, to yeah. think about with plastics. And not even just this. I mean, you're touching on some of my favorite ideas. So I mean, <laughs> uh, like identity and all. So, uh, and we're not just wiring ourselves to just, just like a broad idea of culture, right? We then after adolescence go into the workforce, right? Like what other animal has like different specializations? That you, like, yeah, you might be like a, more of a forager or more of a hunter or whatever it is, right? But like we specialize and we then go into certain businesses that have their own cultures and we have to learn the norms of those things and the different groups that we're a part of. Like the dynamic social nature of our brain is what really needs this high level of plasticity to be able to be constantly adapting. Um, and like Andrew said, like this stays open for, for a long time. Like a frontal lobe is by far the most plastic part of the brain. And it's also, as we'll talk later, one of the reasons why it's the most vulnerable to, to damage, because um, there is kind of a negative side to plasticity. Uh, so I think we can kind of jump into some of these mechanisms, because this is all happening at the cellular level, right? This is the, the cells actually changing themselves. I love David Eagleman's uh, version of this. He's like one of my, my favorite, uh, like popular neuroscience guys, but, uh, and the work that he does is fascinating. But he talks about the brain as not being like hardware or like software. It's liveware. 
it's something completely different. Like you can't just like take a hammer to a motherboard and it just like rewires itself and figures it out. Right. Uh, and that's, what's really fascinating about this, this ability that our, our neurons have to when they recognize that something's working, well, and this is kind of a global property when like we as our mind, when we recognize, when we feel reward, when we see that something's working and we continue to do that thing, uh, we're firing those same synapses over and over and over again. And when we do that, they literally start to grow together. They start to form new dendrites, uh, which are kind of the receivers of this information. They start to pump themselves full of more receptors so they can boost the signal that they're getting. There's tons of these just like, uh, I mean, it's, it's an entire society in its own, these little cells. And they recognize that like something here is important and I need to, I need to make it more accessible. Yeah. And like, that's, that's the basic idea. And probably a lot of people listening to this have heard the the saying that goes, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And maybe also the, the like addendum to that, that neurons out of sync lose their link. And that's just a really simple kind of, uh, you know, uh, rule of thumb about how, uh, how this works, how neuroplasticity actually works at the level of the cell. Um, it's, it's, a uh, a little bit complicated because when when neurons are actually when they're actually in contact with each other that's when they're they're really wiring together but there's also this idea of functional connectivity um where you have kind of long chains of neurons and networks that become um more tightly linked in their function through this repeated use but it's not necessarily that every single neuron is wiring up to every other neuron in that network <laughs> um, but still the the basic uh, cellular mechanism can pretty accurately be described as uh neurons that fire together wire together and then and the, it's, the other yeah go ahead oh, go, no, go no no ahead. go ahead <laughs> i was just gonna say the other side of that the like where they lose their link because they're mm -hmm. out of sync um they can, it, it's just basically the reverse of the mechanisms that Taylor was just talking about. If, if a neural pathway is not used for a long time, like say you learned to, like me, played soccer as a kid and you're really into soccer, um, but then, you know, you go through puberty and you're not really playing soccer anymore. You don't play it. And like me, you can't even remember how to dribble a ball anymore. Uh, <laughs> why is that? That's uh that's probably something like the reverse of the mechanisms that Taylor was just talking about. You know, losing dendrites or, or perhaps uh, dendritic spines, a little bit more technical term, but regardless, mm -hmm. like these neurons are less tightly linked together because of that, that non-use. And I think there's an important distinction to make there too, uh, because there are certain things that happen throughout the, the first kind of third of our life uh, where we go through certain periods called pruning, uh, where, so you have to imagine, so as, as a young child, young child's brain is incredibly plastic, right? There's just like all of these neurons are trying to figure out what makes sense in the world, right? And these neurons, they're just getting electrical signals, right? So it's all about the child's experience in the world. And as they figure things out, as they experience reward and all of these things, these neurons are, are tagging like, oh, this is important. These things belong together. These are associations, right? And they're trying to make sense of the world. But sometimes those connections that they're making are wrong. 
right? So you, you're trying as a, as a young child to figure out categories of information, right? That all things that have wheels are cars. But then you, you realize that some things that have wheels are not called cars, right? Uh, and there's like this addendum process that has to happen. But as we go through childhood, there's periods where there are these huge pruning uh, mechanisms that happen where we cut back a lot of these, these neural synapses that are happening. And those actually kind of get rid of those completely. Um, whereas some of the, the other kind of, if they don't fire in sync, they lose their link. Sometimes later in life, those don't completely go away. Right. And that's a reason why, like, if like with me, with like, I used to snowboard. Right. But I, I learned to snowboard like after adolescence, it became something that I was, I was ingrained in. Right. I did it a lot. I haven't snowboarded in like four years, but I could hop back on and it could still be there. Right. And that was kind of analogous to the, the metaphor I used earlier of that old path, that bad habit, whatever, that's still there. So you have to realize that even though you're not engaging in a task anymore, uh, especially in adulthood, it doesn't mean that that completely goes away. And it's usually kind of right under the surface. And if you start doing it again, it's a lot easier to get it kind of active and running again. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Probably if I actually tried, I could get back some dribbling skills in soccer. Um, we have a good uh, question here that yeah. uh, pertains to that. It's from Rose says uh, a child's brain is not the same as an adult is children process things differently. Don't they? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That gets into um, a whole issue of, of brain development and, and how children are, are learning to, to, conceptualize and process the information coming in. Um, but definitely one of the ways that, that they process the world differently is that they are, their brains are in this super plastic state. They're able to learn. I mean, there's, we'll, maybe we should introduce the idea of, um, totally. of uh, windows of plasticity or uh, critical periods where um, at a certain, during a certain window in development, certain kinds of mental functions or, or certain kinds of things are easier to learn, um, like can be much easier to learn. So like language is a really good example where um, I, I'm not, I can't remember the exact time course, but I think it's uh, some, somewhere like before, four, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, where we can, we can pretty effortlessly pick up up to like two or three languages if they're being spoken in context around us as kids. So yeah, an adult brain can't do that nearly with, with the speed or um, uh, efficiency that a child's brain can. And I think when we're thinking about the difference between an adult's brain and a child's brain, um, there's, there's a, a couple of different things that we have to think about. First of all, there are regions of the adult brain that are much more mature much more connected, like the frontal lobe that allows for regulation of emotions, of, of thought processes, of impulses, and all of these kind of things. Um, but the other thing is that the as an adult, the, the network properties of our brain are much different. We're using our brain in a very different way. Uh, we're thinking more logically. We're not kind of impulsive and things like that. But the other thing is what Andrew was was really kind of tagging into with these critical periods is that there are certain periods of time where certain regions of our brain are, are much more plastic. 
Um, and it's it's really important to start thinking about this, not in terms of like the, the child's brain just being kind of completely plastic, like his whole brain is plastic or her whole brain is plastic, but really that there's this, this timing of sensory stuff. So uh, visuals, so making sense of the visual world, making sense of the, the auditory world when we're really young, those things are plastic right when we're born. As, as light's coming in, we're trying to figure out what lines and edges are, what different frequencies of sounds are, but then those kind of solidify pretty early. And if you don't receive any kind of light to the retina in that critical period, then you can't see later on after that closes, right? And same with, with hearing and things like that. Uh, whereas if those are open, if you've learned some, there's some ability to kind of regain function later in life. But you have to see there's kind of this hierarchy of plasticity that as you move through life, certain areas of your brain are becoming more kind of hardwired. Certain kind of tasks are becoming more hardwired. And there's a period kind of like two to four, like Andrew was saying with language, where language is really important for a child's ability to engage with the social environment that they're a part of. And so the brain is, is super open to it. And it doesn't require, like Andrew was saying, like when you're in these super plastic episodes, it doesn't require a ton of effort because the brain is looking for associations. They're finding associations and it's just tagging like, oh, this belongs to that. This is connected to this. Right. Uh, and then there's a period where that starts to close down, where now my ability to to talk, to communicate, to have language uh, is now hardwired, where I'm now focused on other abilities, on logic tasks, on like engaging in a social educational system, right? Uh, where learning language is no longer as important as it used to be. Uh, and there's there's really some some interesting things. I think we can maybe touch on it right now, Andrew, but. Uh, that it would be really nice to just be plastic all the time, right? To be able to learn anything that we want to, but there's dangers with that because plasticity is something that opens our neurons up to oxidative stress. So when a neuron is plastic, when it's in this, this stage of being able to reach out and make connections and do all of these things, it's also open to the outside world in the brain. And it's open to a lot of the antioxidant, the, the stress uh, that can damage those cells. And so we think that that is why this hardwiring process happens. There's this, these breaking mechanisms, these coats that get put on these nerves that hold them into place, but also protect them from the elements. And as Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, one of our brain regions that's the most plastic into adulthood is our frontal lobe. And our frontal lobe continues to be plastic later in life. And it's also what gets damaged in Alzheimer's, in dementia, in all of these kind of later in life neurodegenerative diseases. They're super vulnerable because they're still plastic. Yeah, and also the the hippocampus, and I think the cerebellum is also early in Alzheimer's. Both of those are um, some of the the earliest brain regions to start developing the like plaques and tangles associated with Alzheimer's. And the hippocampus is this brain region that is very plastic throughout life because it's really important for um, kind of encoding and and helping to store memories. And then the cerebellum. Um, this, I, I don't know for certain if it's super plastic throughout life, but there's definitely uh, changes that go on throughout life in, in learning motor skills and things like that in the cerebellum. Um, that's a really great point. I, I uh, don't want to get too far off that, but we have a couple questions yeah, yeah. in the chat that kind of relate to that. Um, 
So uh, uh, first, uh, just Rose following up saying, I grew up speaking a different language as a child, but now as an adult, I'm no longer fluent in my birth language. I, that's really interesting. That's pretty common, I, I think, of people who who initially uh, maybe grow up in one country. Or I have a friend actually who uh, was kind of raised by like um, a, uh, a care or a um, what am I trying to think like a, a nanny, a, a but nanny. she spoke yeah. Spanish, and so his first language was Spanish. But of course, he you know he's grown up in California, and then he grows up, and now he can kind of speak Spanish. But that was his first language growing up, really, because she was like the main person that he was around all the time. Um, so yeah, definitely a, an interesting thing there. Although I bet if you Rose were to go back and try to learn that language, you could probably learn it faster than the average person. I don't know for sure. But a lot of it probably because it was before adolescence uh, and you weren't using it through adolescence as you were kind of becoming a uh, specialized individual. That's what adolescence is about, is about specializing. As you go out into the world and you form this identity and who you are, uh, there's major pruning uh, events that happen around that that get rid of a lot of the stuff that's not specifically tied to that. And so that's why a lot of the stuff that you learn before adolescence that you don't continually use, it's not part of your kind of specialization identity process, those tend to get kind of pruned off. That's a great point. Um, and then one other uh, question from uh, from Bruce uh, talking about muscle memory. Could that be, could it be that muscle memory is used subconsciously? So those paths aren't totally unused, kind of referring to why we we don't necessarily forget, like I was talking about with dribbling a soccer mm -hmm. ball. Um, uh, maybe, I, I don't know. Do you have anything about that, Taylor? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's it's definitely tied to some of these mechanisms we were just talking about with, uh, with like pruning and things like that, is that uh, it's this idea of a depotentiation. So, uh, this idea of neurons that that don't link lose their or that don't sync lose their link. Uh, if there's not an actual like pruning event that's like cutting back these connections, those connections are always still there, right? They're they're depotentiated, so they probably don't have as many kind of receptors on the nerves anymore. Uh, they may have kind of pulled back from each other a little bit, but that circuit is still there. And so it's one of those things that like as soon as you run some current through that circuit and it realizes, oh, this is important again, uh, because when I hop back on my snowboard, I'm not at the skill that I was four years ago. Right. I know how to ride my snowboard, but I can't ride it like I used to ride it. And so there still is some like repairing of that and like building up the potentiation around that. But the overall kind of path and string of motor exercise, those are all still stored in the spinal cord. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so uh, it does plasticity see. have to be constantly practiced? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, I guess plasticity, just as as plasticity, is kind of just the phenomenon itself of the brain changing. But I, I do think that. Uh, I guess there's evidence that trying to learn, like continuing to learn more and more and pushing your mm -hmm. brain and challenging it throughout life seems to, to maybe help stave off like Alzheimer's and, and these kinds of neurodegenerative diseases that we were mentioning, or at least can help the brain compensate for them. There's this really interesting study that was done a, a, long, a while back. I think Andrew Newberg, who I've 
interviewed on uh, Sense of Mind before. He he studies spirituality in the brain and how these nuns um, who were I think they were Franciscan nuns and they they had basically they had done a lot of of both cognitive and and physical like work throughout their life of um, uh, like yoga and and a bunch of different prayer, yeah pray, prayer meditation these things yeah. that are really engaging um, the brain and all these different kinds of circuits and um, one interesting thing about that was a lot of the, some of these nuns mo pretty much all of them were, were functioning at a normal level like they weren't showing any signs of, of neurodegenerative disease or anything like that um, but their brains when when they were autopsied after they died i think they showed signs of alzheimer's of, of or at least some of them did but they didn't actually have the behavioral or, or cognitive symptoms associated with it so i think there's a lot to be said for the brain's ability to compensate um, for losses that might occur throughout life and it wasn't just personal things that they were doing, like like uh, meditation and yoga or prayer or whatever. It was also the fact that they were embedded in an entirely rich social environment. Uh, something that, uh, so kind of coming back to your, your question about uh, should plasticity be, always be practiced, Rose, is this idea that uh, we have an epidemic in this country of, uh, of laziness, especially, <laughs> and, and I... And I I guess laziness is probably not the best word, but inactivity, right? Over, especially over 60 years old. And we have a culture in like in America, in the West, that retirement means not doing anything anymore. That you retire, you go home, you you watch TV, you relax, right? There's this idea of like sitting on the beach with a margarita, like you're <laughs> retired, you're not doing anything. That is the worst thing that you can do for your brain. And there's no, like, it, it's not a surprise that we're seeing such high, like neurodegenerative uh, stuff happening to all of these people that are extremely inactive. Because we see from, from the research with people that are, uh, are like heavy meditators and people that are engaged in, in social activities and leisure activities, people that find new purpose after retirement are staving off that neurodegeneration. And even if their brain is degenerating, like Andrew just said with these nuns, they're not experiencing the symptoms. And so activity, and this is something I think that I really want to highlight throughout this entire video is that, and it's something that I, I kind of brought up at the beginning, but I, uh, this kind of stuff requires activity. It requires effort. It requires that you actually do something. Like we don't have this magic pill that's just going to fix you. And when you look at the people that are actually researching, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but the people that are researching the kind of stuff that opens up plasticity, whether it's a drug, whether it's some type of neuromodulator or like electrical activity that you apply to the brain, those don't just do it. Those are always paired with behavior and not just behavior, immersed behavior, attentive behavior, behavior that you actually care about, right? Getting into the flow of something like we talked about in our last episode, like it has to be something that you care about. And this is, I mean, this, this whole like inactivity and retirement and everything, like these people go through an identity crisis because of our culture, right? You, you end up, you're like, things are done. I mean, I think about my grandfather and I think that like retirement is really what, what killed him, honestly, because it was, he had all of this stuff to do. He, he was, he was working in his, in his shop until he was like 80 years old. And then all of a sudden he had nothing and he was just sitting on the couch. Right. 
Uh, and it really, there's this, like, like I mentioned, this is the identity crisis that you lose your job, you lose your purpose. And then all of a sudden it's like, who am I? What do I do anymore? Uh, and so that whole thing is all this active process and I'm kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's really yeah. great. I mean, we have, we have two questions here that I think are, are important. First, um, does plasticity help stroke patients? Good question. Yes, it, it can. Um, there's, there's similar to, to what we're talking about with, uh, these developmental windows of plasticity. There seems to be like a window of, um, plasticity where the brain is most likely to kind of fully recover or mostly recover its function after a stroke and depending on how severe that stroke was. Um, but there's a lot of examples of this, especially in kind of like the, the neurological literature. I'm, I'm reading this book um, called The Mind's Eye by Oliver Sacks. And uh, if you've ever heard of him, he was a, a neurologist. He passed away about, I think, six years ago now, um, but just really wonderful writer and also just recounts a lot of these stories of people who experience brain damage and then uh, over time with really extensive practice and and um, really that, that what Taylor's talking about, that motivational component of it, being yeah. interested in it, being really wanting to get this back, like whether it's somebody who lost the ability to read, like he talks about the story of a, a man who was a writer and he lost the ability to read. And over time, he never fully regained that super fluent um, ability to just look at a page and kind of, you know, scan it, read through it. But he found all these clever ways to kind of get back to being able to to read more and more effectively over time. So I think that's especially with brain damage. I think it's it's better to think about it like yeah, it's possible, maybe possible to to regain that function, but it may also just be getting better and better at compensating for that kind of that lost function. And there's also, uh, there's some really interesting work being done by John Krakauer. I think he's at John Hopkins. Uh, we talked about him on our motor learning episode, but uh, he talks a lot about there being these windows of plasticity after brain damage. And the brain damage itself opens up what they think is it's opening up repair processes. And it's highly likely that our repair processes in our brain are very similar to our neuroplasticity processes. And they've actually shown that if there's a lot, and they've, they've shown this with mice too, uh, in a lot of animal models. I don't know if they've done it with, with monkeys, but uh, they show that if you do really heavy rehab, like, like super engaged hours and hours a day of rehab right after stroke, like right after that, the, I mean, like the animal model ones, like you can barely even tell that they lost function. Um, whereas if you start the rehab a week later, two weeks later, then there's a significant loss in function. Uh, but there's also a piece that's really interesting from the work of, uh, Mike Merzenich is, is huge in this field. Uh, and there was this belief, I think that, that once stroke patients had lost the ability to, to move a limb, right. That it was, it was gone. Like they were never going to be able to move that limb again. And they came in with this thing called restriction therapy, which blew my mind. Fascinating. What they did was they put the good arm in a sling. So they weren't able to use their good arm at all. And out of necessity from just having to go through their daily routine, feed themselves, they were forcing themselves to have to move the arm that wasn't working. 
And these people re- retained, I mean, achieved a level of, of movement in that arm that's remarkable from not being able to even move a finger to being able to like grasp things and bring things to their mouth. Um, and it shows, I think, the power of necessity. So there's this great like video that you can look up of the bipedal dog, uh, this dog that has two legs. And it learned how to walk like a bipedal human. It yeah. just like walks around, right? Uh, and it's back it, legs, if people it, are wondering. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even handstands, but yeah. Uh, but it shows that that living things are are motivated, right? And that sets us apart from machines. We have we have goals, we have intentions, right? And a lot of the times, when you get all the way back to Maslow's hierarchy and you get down to the bottom. When you have to survive, that's that's what really drives these innovative plastic mechanisms. And it's it's something that's really interesting to think about because if you're thinking about change, we had this uh, this question earlier from uh, from Ivan about anxiety disorders and whether or not an- like anxious behaviors become kind of hardwired and automatized. Yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. And there's a ton of people that that might be watching this that might be trying to change that are trying to get away from some of these kind of uh, anxious behaviors or things like that. And it requires so much necessity. You have to convince yourself that this other road is, is the one that you want to start building. This other path is the one that you want to start building. And you have to realize that your brain is trying to be efficient, right? That when that dog had two legs, it had to change. It had to go find food. But if you have the option to do something that's easier, to do something that's familiar, your brain is going to go there because it's easy. It doesn't require a lot of energy. It doesn't require a lot of effort, right? Yeah. But, and, but, and that should not be misconstrued as saying that you, you can't change those pathways um, in, uh, on Ivan's question. Um, like it's, yeah, the, the pathways may stay there, but you yeah. can, as Taylor's saying, build these new pathways, change your brain's kind of reactivity. Something we'll talk about uh, in a minute is about these, some of the constraints or some of the, maybe the genetic predispositions that kind of maybe set us up each a little bit differently from the start, or, or maybe it's a kind of a developmental genetic mechanism where it kind of arises throughout our, our life. But, um, like, I mean, there's no doubt that there's some genetic basis to anxiety disorders, uh, depression, um, pretty much everything. If you want to learn about that, I have an interview with the, uh, the uh, behavioral geneticist Robert Plowman on my channel. Um, and, but, but the reality is that, that we have a lot of room to change these kinds of things. And that's where, you know, psychotherapy and where, um, a lot of just like behavioral and cognitive interventions can come in and can help you kind of take hold of, of the most, you know, of those, those difficulties, those challenges, the, the anxiety that you're talking about and turn it down and, and learn how your brain, how your mind is working, why these things, why this anxiety is being triggered. And then you can kind of get, take hold of those mechanisms and start to, to fiddle with those dials, even though you might not have, 100% control over everything. And that's, I really like that you just said that, Andrew, because like that really ties into, I think, why I wanted to do this whole show in the first place. 
like the whole idea of what we're talking about, what we're trying to bring to anybody that's listening right now is how to really apply the things that we're learning from neuroscience in really useful ways. And like seeing comments like the one that we have from Rose about having three strokes and she's still here and learning and like, that's, that's amazing. Wow. Like that, that just like gives me goosebumps. And like, it's amazing that you're, that you're listening because like there are ways to take advantage of the things that we're learning, the things that we know about the brain. Uh, my wife is is a, a mental health therapist, and she was telling me about this metaphor that she loves when she's thinking about kind of change and doing these things. And uh, imagine being stuck in a river, and you're holding on to a log, right? And you're just kind of being taken with the river. You're anxious, you're uh, you're depressed, whatever it is, and like that's just the way that you know how to get through life. And that log is safe, right? You can see that there's land that if you let go of that log, you can swim, you can get to land, but that's scary, right? Letting go of something that you know, that you know mm. works, right? And and having to, to put in this, this effort to swim through these torrents to get to that land, like that's really what we're trying to highlight is that like, as you do this, as you continually try to change, what we've talked about on previous episodes is all about this process of automatization that the more you engage in a behavior, the more you try to change, the more work you put in on building that new path, the easier it becomes to walk. Yeah, that's that's such a great way of saying that. And I think this applies a lot more widely than, than what we commonly think. I mean, I think anxiety disorders are great, um, you know, way to think about it. And also that like recovery from, from stroke, um, I guess uh, Taylor's gone for a minute, but um the uh, the the thing I know, um, the uh, the thing I I want to say is that there's also we've done it we talked about um, we had an episode on pain on chronic pain and a lot of of the kind of interventions that are being used for chronic pain now are really focused on these neuroplastic mechanisms on changing your brain's relationship with pain your kind of emotional reaction to pain. And um, and slowly kind of shrinking that that pain experience over time. And uh, Rose or anybody else listening who's who's wondering about real like brain healing, I've talked about this book multiple times on this this show. But um, check out uh, the the Brain's Way of Healing by Norman Doidge. It was written about I think seven years ago now, uh, but it's a really really great book and and goes into a lot of this stuff and might might give you some some tools or some ways of thinking about that yeah and a, and a lot of really interesting case studies that that have really kind of blown open our conceptualization of, of what this stuff was because you you really have to think about our like neuroplasticity is this this just kind of word that gets thrown around all the time now and it's just it's really popular to, to think but uh, it wasn't like a hundred years ago. We didn't think that this was possible in adulthood. And when you look at like people that just like uh, looked at and tried to observe like children and adolescents and everything, we've known for for since like Greek times that there were these periods where children were really good at learning, and then that closed down, and we specialized, right? Uh, and it's only recent, and we're in a really exciting time, which I think we can kind of transition into a little bit in that we now have the ability to start opening up these critical periods to, we're starting to understand the cellular and the molecular machinery that's involved here, uh, that 
once we get to a, the end of a critical period, that there are these molecular feedback loops that say, okay, I need you to stop being plastic. I need you to go into the kind of this dormant kind of wired up mode. Uh, and we're starting to understand the timing of that, the molecular signals to that, starting to understand ways that we can maybe manipulate that, whether we should, I don't know. Uh, but we're also understanding kind of the electrical properties of a lot of this stuff. And we're understanding that certain compounds open up extremely plastic periods of time. Uh, and so if, if any time was an exciting time to live, I think it's right now. Yeah, definitely. In, in many ways, and neuroplasticity mm -hmm. research is definitely one of those. Um, I guess we could, there's one more question in the chat we could address maybe before we move on. Um, Bruce asks, do metaphors increase or decrease uh, of plasticity? I'm, if I'm using the right word, not just poetry and parable associations. I do this with tool use, nature mimicry, and martial arts. Hmm. Interesting. It that ties into something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, there's a lot of really powerful uh, psychotherapeutic techniques that are that are kind of becoming kind of mainstream right now. There's uh, EMDR. There's something called accelerated resolution therapy. Uh, there's a lot of mindfulness visualization techniques uh, and somatic processing techniques that all use. Uh, and I don't know if EMDR uses much, but a lot of them use visualizations uh, and. I've, I'm a big proponent. We kind of talked about this in one of our last episodes when we were talking about how the, how the body feels, how our brain feels our body and everything, that our body doesn't speak English, right? It sends us these signals and things like that. And we can then turn those signals into pictures, into metaphors that might actually be a more rich explanation of what those signals are than any words that we could use to try to describe them. And that may be why some of these like metaphors and visualizations and things are so powerful in being able to communicate with our body. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, one more question. Uh, Qu Quintessential Roots asks, how does neuroplasticity help with someone who lost their speech due to a stroke? Um, we talked a little bit about that earlier, about um, compensation. Although I think with speech and with any particular function, it's important to ask, you know, how widespread of damage was was this stroke? I mean, like we, I don't want to give off the impression that that we think that any and all functions of the brain can be regained just simply through practice and through neuroplasticity. I mean, there are limits and, and speech is an example of a highly specialized function that, you know, if you saw one of my last videos on sense of mind, you'd know that uh, language is, is highly specialized to in the, or highly um, unique for the human brain um, compared to other brains in the animal kingdom. And so it, you know, it depends. And I think that probably the, the best thing that someone could do if they experience that kind of stroke um, or if th their loved ones can um, help them get to a, a neurologist or a speech uh, therapist, something like that. I mean, we're not medical doctors. We're not <laughs> trying to give out medical advice or anything like that. Um, but I mean, I think it's uh, may it may be possible. I don't I don't know. I'm not, definitely would be speculating if I gave a yeah. strong no. answer to that. And we we did talk earlier that like timing is really important with a lot of brain damage uh, that getting into pretty intense rehab early is what really produces a lot of the, the best results. Um, but as Andrew said, I mean, that's, that's definitely something that uh, you should consult a therapist or a, a doctor about, but you can, I mean, everything that we've been talking about is trying to 
incorporate a lot of these global properties, right? Speech, like Andrew said, is really difficult because it's it's very confined to a couple of very specialized regions. Whereas movement is something that like 98% of our brain participates in. Uh, the, the cerebellum makes up like 80% of all of the neurons in the brain. And then all of the other stuff, like a huge percentage of it is all dedicated to movement. And so reteaching yourself how to move, you have a lot of different pieces to pull from uh, that you can then kind of re, uh, reallocate and reuse for different things. And some of the, the more specialized kind of purely human abilities may be a lot harder to, to recover. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I think, again, just emphasizing that sometimes it's not necessarily recovery, but compensation. Yeah. Like, um, you know, speech in particular, I'm not really sure, but I was talking earlier about this this case of this guy who, who had a, a stroke that affected his um, brain region involved in reading and uh, was able to compensate for that, but never never maybe fully regained that that kind of fluid reading that we're all used to. Interestingly, though, he was able to write, which is amazing that those are two different uh, functions in the brain. But I guess we should uh, we should move on a little bit. Um, <laughs> we, th I mean, we've been talking a little bit about these limitations and about how there really are, um, you know, these developmental windows that when they close, these kinds of like learning a language becomes much more difficult. Um, and uh, and there's many examples of that. But then we've also mentioned that genetics influences all of this. I mean, even the degree to which your your synapses are are plastic, you know, there's there's definitely some genetic influence on that. Um, but, you know, it's not determinist. It's not that like you can't change because you don't have as plastic of you know synapses as somebody else. But uh, just just being aware that. This isn't magic. This is physiology. This is these are are changes that are happening to a, a biological organ. Organ, yeah. But there's there's a lot of things that you can do to get your brain into a more plastic state. Um, and I mentioned that there's like these fantastical, really cool like drugs and things that are being developed to try to do this. There's some transcranial magnetic stimulation that's been really effective for people with depression. Uh, even things like uh, psilocybin and mushrooms seem to be tapping into plastic windows. Uh, but the things that you can do that don't require you to take a drug or to do anything uh, exercise, be active, get good sleep. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, oh, you know, that's just good for you generally, but, <laughs> but exercise, uh, can, can increase the production of, of neural growth factors. So you might yep. have heard the terms like, um, brain derived neurotrophic factor or glial derived neurotrophic factor. And these are molecules that, that stimulate the, the growth of, um, of these, uh, dendrites that are the synapses that the thing, the mechanisms that we're talking about can stimulate these neuroplastic mechanisms. Um, and, uh, it exercise may even increase this phenomenon known as neurogenesis, which is the birth of new neurons, which is actually still kind of a, a controversial idea, whether adults really have lots of, uh, new neurons being born, but um, there's some evidence to suggest, at least in mice, that um, exercise can enhance the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus, a brain region that is really important for um, your memory of, of experiences and facts and uh, and things like that. So that these are some some interesting uh, 
ways to do that. And then uh, Taylor just mentioned sleep and sleep is, is the most, I I think probably the most effective way to enhance uh, neuroplasticity and the consolidation of, of memories generally. And, and one interesting way this happens is that during sleep, the, sorry, during sleep, the hippocampus, which is uh, that brain region I was just talking about, um, it's not where memories are ultimately stored. It actually, while you're sleeping, communicates with the cerebral cortex to help store those memories in, in various regions and, and patterns in the cortex. So, uh, so sleep and exercise, you know, getting those two things in abundance is going to be really good for, for your brain generally, but for this neuroplasticity and learning. And I, I, th- I really want to kind of emphasize the sleep portion of this because uh, the effort that you're that you're putting in when you're trying to make a change, that that kind of friction of like trying to do something different than your body wants to do, right? It involves norepinephrine, it involves these chemicals that make you agity, that doesn't feel good to change, right? But you're not actually changing in that moment. You're tagging the synapses that need to change that night. Uh, there's a, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine that will actually come in and tag the synapses that need to grow. Uh, and a lot of that growth happens when you're either in deep rest or when you're sleeping. And so I, I can't emphasize enough that like getting good sleep after learning is what really, really helps to engage all of these processes. Yes. Yeah, and I apologize if you guys are hearing dogs barking in the background. There's something, probably nothing going on, but they're freaking out. Um <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah. And, and, uh, those are important mechanisms. And then just, uh, maintaining your general health is, is kind of obviously important. It's important for all your organs, including your brain. Um, and then, uh, managing stress and, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll, uh, we, well, we talked about how, how stress can kind of be, it can damage these neural tissue. It can damage, um, neurons in the brain. And uh, it, it can inhibit, directly inhibit these neuroplastic processes that we're talking about. Um, and especially in the hippocampus, there's these um, receptors for stress hormones in the hippocampus. And uh, the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky talks about this a lot and how when you have this chronic activation of the stress system and you're just kind of flooding your brain with these stress hormones, um, it, it can actually cause the hippocampus to shrink and to atrophy over time. And uh, so it's a, a kind of a, a just a really dramatic way of seeing that that reducing stress or really managing stress, really managing. Uh, having stress in the right context is really important um, and not having an overactive kind of sympathetic nervous system response. No, I uh, actually did my master's in the emotional effects on memory. Uh, and and yeah, Andrew is absolutely correct. There's these glucocorticoid receptors on the hippocampus that uh, when you're in a highly stressful situation, you're not laying down contextual memories. And this makes sense in the context of PTSD, uh, because when your hippocampus is shut down, your hippocampus is responsible for binding things that are happening to context. And so a lot of the times when you're in a very traumatic event, the context is not being saved with what happened. And context is how we retrieve memories. Oftentimes we think about like, okay, what happened on my 31st birthday? That's the context, right? That allows us to go in and find that memory. But a lot of the times with PTSD, these memories are saved in different ways that aren't really accessible 
through just thinking about them, thinking about the context. And instead they're triggered by the, the fan spinning and it's like a helicopter blade or whatever it is. Uh, and it floods you with a lot of those emotions that are tied to that trigger. Uh, it was, there's some fascinating papers that I read that were kind of tied to like the different ways our body stores memories, but maybe a topic for a different, 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 different episode. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I think we're, we're kind of wrapping up at the end here. And I think one of the things I really want to highlight that has been kind of a, a theme through this, this whole episode, uh, is that there's probably a lot of people listening that are really wanting to find a way to to change something meaningful in their lives uh, and to really find any kind of avenue to do that. And what we really want to highlight is that it's it's in you. And it's the belief that that's possible that really is what allows you to do that. If you go back to the metaphor at the beginning of the episode, uh, you really have to think about the only way that you are going to continuously hike up that mountain and cut back that brush and build that new really hard path is if you know that there's something good at the end, that the view at that top of the mountain is better than any view that you'll ever see, right? And that path that you've made with all your bad habits, with your addictions, whatever it may be, that path is going nowhere, right? And you know it is. You walk it, there's nothing at the end of it anymore. There might have been something rewarding at the beginning when you were walking that path, but you've depleted that, right? It's not there anymore. And so really having this, this focus and having this, like something that's amazing about being human is our ability to think into the future, to understand that there is something at the end of all of this effort. And it's when you go back to those old paths, those old bad habits, that's you going back into your impulsive short-term brain, the brain that can't see the future. And that's what really makes change possible is having the hope having the will and knowing that if I continue to put in this effort, this is going to get easier. Well, that's great. That's a great point to end on, I think. Um, uh, well, yeah, I guess we'll just address uh, this, <laughs> this last question from Bruce uh, about the guy with who lost his reading ability, but can write, I'll just say um, uh, that just has to do with the kind of the architecture of language um processing in the human brain and where there are separate information processing streams for uh, production and uh, for comprehension of language. So um, I can put some resources in the description of this video if you're interested in that. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you everyone for being here, uh, for checking out this episode of The Social Brain. And um, you know, we, we just really appreciate all the questions and just keep them coming for next time. Um, also, you may have noticed on the, uh, I think it'll be on the top left of your screen, there's a, a QR code. And uh, if you scan that, you can go to the Social Brain, uh, our Patreon page and become a supporter if you care about the show and you want to uh, help keep it going. Uh, for now, we just have one tier, but we will be adding more uh, benefits as time goes on. So if you're if you want to support us that way, we really want to keep bringing this to everyone for free as much as possible. So uh, that's that's a big part of our mission. Yeah, we're we're appealing to those that that love what we do and want to support us because that does help us kind of have some motivation, like we were just talking about. See <laughs> that there's there's people that like what we're doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, we. I 
I think what Andrew said, like, we love doing this. We really do. Uh, this is the highlight of, of my week. Uh, in some respects, I mean, I have, I have a, a beautiful wife and a, and a son, the, <laughs> the highlight of my week, but sure, sure, <laughs> but Andrew, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some ways that you can support us that we can keep doing this. My wife runs uh, an Etsy shop. She sells a bunch of uh, therapy inspired and mindfulness inspired and psychology inspired gifts, like shirts and mugs and stuff. And uh, that always, that helps us and keeps food in the fridge. So <laughs> Always important. Um, oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, and uh, don't forget to uh, subscribe to our channels. I'm Sense of Mind. Taylor is the Cellular Republic. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.